0: Welcome to the A podcast, Always Bet on Black. I'm your host, Paula Glover. Today, we'll be talking to Chris Womack, Executive Vice President and President of External Affairs for Southern Company. Chris will be talking with us about fearless leadership, getting things done, and being of service to others. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. I hope you enjoy this conversation. So I saw where you were honored by the Greenville Chamber of Commerce.
1: Oh God, you wanted One of, of its
0: favorite sons. Yes, of course.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and so I wondered if you would like to talk a little bit about kind of what that was like. And I, and I, I did see a subsequent interview um, so I'll share that with you where you shared the story about being, I guess, eight or nine years old and getting, um, assistance for your mom in the hospital, um, right. when it was and so I'm just really interested in how those experiences, if if you want to share that story, share the story, but how those experiences kind of framed how you thought about who you were going to be in this world moving forward.
1: Well, I mean, I was fortunate enough to, to be raised in, in the South and, in a rural part of Southern Alabama, a town called Greenville. And so back in the sixties, I mean, that was kind of my, that was my upbringing upbringing. I mean, I I lived through, I, I mean, I experienced the Green Mile, which many of you may have seen the, the story and, and, and the book and that whole process about traveling through the South and doing during, during periods of Jim Crow and, and during the sixties. And so we would travel from Alabama to Chicago every summer and I, I mean I never thought about why there were only certain places we could stop to, to get gas or stop to eat. I mean it was more excited the fact that my grandmother would cook with fried chicken the night before and so I couldn't wait to, to, to stop somewhere and get the fried chicken out of the aluminum foil and some white bread and, and have have that experience. That was something that was that was a thrill to me. Yeah. I and mean, I didn't I wasn't worried about where we could use the bathroom or where we couldn't. Uh, so there was a lot about that period of segregation that I recognized and noticed, but didn't fully appreciate um, the limitations that it had imposed on, on me and my family in terms of living. And so, yeah, I, I went back to the Chamber of Commerce uh, to give a speech about business, the economy, politics, and a lot of different things, but I also use it as an opportunity to, 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 to challenge the city to, to be better. In a lot of ways, and we, like a lot of other other communities, during those periods, we were divided by by railroad tracks, and so I use the railroad tracks as an analogy about being on the other side of the tracks and how to bring bring those communities together. I mean, we were divided by railroad tracks. We were divided by Baptists versus Methodists. I mean, there were a number of different divisions we had, and of course, we were divided by race: black versus white. Uh, so I used that conversation at the Chamber of Commerce uh, to talk about some of those things. And I shared one story where my mother was not feeling well. We went to the doctor's office and we were sitting in the in the colored waiting room and we'd sat there about 45 minutes to the My mother was in pain and she had not been seen. She had not been responded to. Uh, so I decided unbeknownst and not paying attention to to protocols or to norms, I went to the white side and said, Somebody needs to see my mother. And kind of made a big stink. And the doctor came out and said, What's going on? I said, Nobody's with my mother's on the side, on the on the other side, and she's not being responded to. And so the doctor uh went to uh deal with her and they they were actually they had a wonderful relationship. And so he went and saw her and cared for her and and at that point, um, the kind of colored and separate waiting rooms kind of changed. So that's one thing that I that I remember. And I mean, there were a no, number of other examples where where I did see segregation. In the, and once again, I, as I said, the limitations it imposed on, on me and my family and other black people growing up in the South. And so said, so, you know, this is not fair. This is not right. And this has got to be different.
0: And so what is it about your particular up upbringing, you think, that allows you to see yourself bigger than just or differently than just kind of what segregation would have defined you as a young black boy?
1: My grandmother was a, a very spiritual woman who grew up in the 1800s, uh, late 1800s, and who I, who I grew up with. Um, I don't know why she did it, but she always, she always said, you can be whatever you want to be. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I mean, I didn't have this, these images of black executives and companies. I didn't see the potential for a black person to be president. The images I saw were of being a preacher, uh, being a teacher, or maybe a principal. I mean, those are the, the, those are the images that I saw uh, as I was growing up. Or maybe, maybe a black athlete. I mean, we did see uh, sports figures at that time. Uh, but I just, I when she would say you could be whatever you wanted to be, I didn't know what that meant. Uh, and then the other thing she would say to me and my brothers was that we were as good as anybody and we were better than most. Mm-hmm. And so I never saw myself with with limitations. I never I never imposed limits on myself about what I couldn't do or what I what I didn't have the opportunity to do. And so I never saw an opportunity that I wouldn't pursue or that I wouldn't chase if it was something that was that was of interest to me. And I always felt like whatever I chose to get involved in, that I could be successful. I had to put the work in, I had to get along well with people, uh, but I could I could achieve it. I could be successful in whatever I I desire to do if I if I put the work in. So
0: let me ask you this question: How then were you able to, if you did experience kind of self-doubt? And, and you know, we we hear a lot more today than normal about people being able to reflect and say, you know what? Yeah, I had imposter syndrome. Nah, I I certainly doubted my ability to be able to do X, Y, and Z. Um, did you ever encounter that? And and if you did, how did you push through it?
1: Um, it, it was me. Seriously, I mean, I. I mean, my grandmother was was a very spiritual woman, and so I grew up in a very spiritual, faithful household. And so our faith was very, very important to to myself and to to my family as I was growing up. and and yeah, so we spent a lot of time at church. I mean, weekends were were times we spent in church at uh, at uh, went to Sunday school at the main service. Uh, went back for the evening service. Did Baptist Training Union. I mean, we did. I did all those things. And so, so faith has always been a very, very important part of my life. And I, and I think that's what in those in those down times, in those periods of uncertainty, uh, my faith has always brought me through and always given me hope that things are going to be okay. And so, that has been. Yeah, I've got to do my part. I got to prepare myself. I, it, I just can't be wishing and hoping and shucking and jiving and and trying to kind of slip my way through. Uh, but I always knew that. Always felt I've always had a pretty positive attitude that things are going to be okay. Uh, it may not be the time frame in which I want it to be, but things are going to be okay. And and that's been a, been a kind of uh, foundational part in uh, part of my life as I've as I've gone through it thus far.
0: So you said that your grandmother and your mother always told you that there's really nothing that you can't do and nothing that you know that you can be whatever you want to be. Um, At what point did you decide what it is that you did want to be, and what was that?
1: Um, Well, I never decided. Never. I mean, I've I still haven't decided. I I've been on this phenomenal journey of of life and and experiences and been incredibly blessed and fortunate with the opportunities that I have been able to, to pursue. I, um, I left school in, in Kalamazoo, Michigan in 1979, and uh, went, came back home to Alabama, and my mother really wanted me to be a teacher. I always, I always loved politics, uh, always been attracted to politics, and so I woke up one morning and decided that I was going to head to Washington, D.C. to work. I didn't have a job. I didn't know where I was going to live Didn't know where I was going to stay. I didn't know anything. Uh, I had a few dollars in my pocket. So I hopped in my car with, uh, with clothes and uh, I had been there the summer before working as an intern for Ralph Nader, And so I'd had some, some, some experience with DC, but I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to end up doing. Um, called a friend once I got to town and he was, he was, welcoming enough to say, you can come. He's got a cot. He was living, living in an efficiency apartment, but he had a cot that I could sleep on. So I did that for a number of weeks. And I started walking the corridors the of Capitol Hill, and lo and behold, a guy named Leon Panetta had a job available to be a legislative correspondent. Wow. I applied and got that job, and That's what I sort of worked with him for the next nine years of my life, knowing what he was going to do or where he was going to head or what his his expectations were and did a lot of things, uh, dealt with a lot of different issues, Uh, became a legislative assistant, uh, became a staff director, kind of uh, staff director of a house committee, uh, house administration. So I became kind of like mayor of Capitol Hill on the house side in terms of managing the Capitol Police, the postmaster's office, the clerk's office, the sergeant at arms, a lot of different things. So I got to experience a lot of different things and got challenged to be flexible and get get things done. And then one day I decided I wanted to um, return back to the South and picked up and moved back to Alabama. Once again, didn't know what I was going to do uh walked around the town for, for a while, and lo and behold, I'd get three, three, three job opportunities. Wow. One with the city of Birmingham, and one with the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and, and one with the Alabama Power Company. I never cared about money. Uh, wealth was not something that I was necessarily driven by. I wanted to make a difference. And so my natural tendency would have been for me to go work for the mayor, uh, but I decided, okay, let will tell you what. Let me go do this power company thing for a couple of years, put it on my resume, and then I'll go go back to politics. Well, that power company thing has now lasted for 32 years, and so that's kind of how that how this journey has evolved, and all the different opportunities that I've had uh, working at the power company, and all the different roles I've had from the external side that, to the corporate services side to Human resources side to the generation side. I mean, I've seen a lot of this business and just wonderful opportunities that I have that I've experienced, but I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do. I mean, I decided to go back to school. I'm working on my doctorate now at Clark Atlanta University. Uh, once again, still trying to figure out what I want to be and what I want to, what I want to do when I grow up. So, you know,
0: today in particular, politicians. Uh, and saying that you're interested in politics is not necessarily met with a round of applause, right? Politicians tend to have um, a really bad reputation. I'm a Forbes lobbyist, and I've had people say, well, lobbyists are like the scourge of the earth. And and then I'd have to say, well, you know, I'm a lobbyist. And it's like, oh, well, not you maybe, but- But the others. But everybody else is, right? We're we're all on the take. Um, I wonder if you could share kind of what did working for- um, Secretary Panetta, kind of teach you about people? Um, and, and how did that role prepare you for the things that you did subsequent to that?
1: I mean, I mean working with Leon was, a, was a, an incredible blessing. And I mean, Leon, um, an Italian-American, um, family, faith uh, are critical to him. And honesty, integrity, and service is kind of how he lives his life. And that's what he imposed on his staff. Those were the expectations. Uh, so, I mean, I was not going out every afternoon and evening with lobbyists in terms of being uh, being offered dinners or anything. I mean, we worked. I mean, every letter that came into the office, I mean, we responded to it. We, we wrote a response, and, and he reviewed it. Uh, we, we, made, we made a commitment to service. I mean, so working with Leon and his wife, Sylvia, I mean, that's one of the things I learned uh, about the importance of integrity, uh, the importance of uh, really about working hard. I mean, we put in those fourteen, sixteen-hour days, and and then we also, he said, okay, we, we got to get some, we got to get things done, we got to get results, mm-hmm. and so those those foundational elements I think were so important to me. As, as I have gone through life and has helped me be successful today, and and, and not accepting no. I mean, if, <clears throat> if there's a law that has some unintended consequences, then we need to change it. And so that's the way I approach things today. If it's not working, let's change it. Let's, let's not accept things to, to be just the way they are. Uh, things can be changed and not be afraid of, of putting the work in. To bring about those changes, and and to and to understand how to get that done, how to do the work, how to do the research, how to how to bring coalitions together, how to bring different factions together, uh, that has been kind of, you know, what I do. I mean, getting stuff done and getting stuff done, not always taking two or three years to do it, but let's get it done now. And sometimes, yeah, we may take some risk and make some decisions. Uh, without all the information, but if, if there's a problem, let's come back and fix it. Uh, but those are some of the things that I that I learned very early on working with Leon, and and those are some things that I think as you talk to people now kind of reflect kind of, it have been a big and important part of my career, and I would say contributed to the success that I've had to date.
0: So you, you've said, you've talked a little bit in, in just in this last response about kind of being a little bit fearless. Right, not being afraid, and um, I think you start out by saying, you know, that we shouldn't be afraid to work. Right, that it, it's it's going to be hard, it's going to be work. If you're talking to a group of students, um, what kind of advice would you give them? And 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 give me some examples of like what that looks like when you say don't be afraid to work.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I once again, I, I think because I, I, I've never been driven by what's the next role, what's the next opportunity. I always feel like, okay, if I do a good job with the job I have, if I get along well with people that I work with, uh, my peers, my my subordinates, my supervisors, if I get along well with them, I do a good job. There's a darn good chance I'm gonna get another opportunity. And so that's that's how I view my work and and career path and and opportunities. Working hard for me, and and I'll never forget. I mean, I had, I'd had my first child, I was living in D.C. Uh, this is probably back in 1986 and I was working on immigration reform issues and I was also staff director for the subcommittee on personnel and police and I'll never forget we were uh, in conference committee on immigration reform bill and we had a major provision in that in that bill um, regarding guest workers uh, because Leon's district had a lot of perishable commodities so guest workers were very important and so making sure we had to supply a labor that was needed. So we were in conference committee and we had to write conference committee language probably like four, three or four o'clock in the morning, three or four o'clock a.m. And so then I went home for quickly because I had to be back because I had a committee hearing that started at eight o'clock. Totally different subject, totally different topic. Um, but I that's what I had to do. And so probably, I mean, no sleep, um, but that's what you got to do. And, and, and that's how you get things done. That's how, that's how you work. And so I know when I first started at the company, I mean, I was not an eight to five, nine to five person. I mean, I was nine to seven, nine to eight and just, just getting things done. And so I think that too has been a, been a big part of my success in terms of not being afraid to work and being available no matter what time of the day it was or what time of, the night it was, and and that's one of the things that I that I you know offer to 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 new hires and uh, to to the younger generation in terms of examples of, of not being afraid to put the work in.
0: So can you talk to me? You you mentioned you know you have a young one at home. Um, and you have this, you know, you're working 14-hour days. You have to prepare for another committee hearing. What does what work-life balance look like for you at that point?
1: Uh, it wasn't much balance. You just had you had to get it done. I mean, and so at the same time, yeah, I wanted to be involved in my in my children's life. I had a young daughter, and I always felt like my goal was that I was going to be the uh, the best diaper changer in the house. That I could, my diapers would never leak. Um, I, I learned how to braid hair now i wasn't real good at it but I, uh, my wife was also working and so i i did it all i mean i was president of the fraternity chapter in dc at that time and so i go to frank meetings and she'd be in the car seat, uh a bassinet whatever sitting there by me at the head table uh, and i'm taking care of her as i'm doing that business that's what i that's what that's what work-life balance was for me, and and you get it all done. Uh, yeah, I would. I probably wasn't the best at it because I did a lot of work, uh, and I didn't I didn't understand balance as best as I probably could have and should have. Uh, but I was I was kind of committed to my work and committed to to doing good work and, and 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 trying to make a difference. At the same time, yeah, my kids and family are very very important to me. Mm-hmm. And so I always tried to make sure that I was at their critical events that was i that I was also an integral part of their lives and their upbringing and and not just saying, "Okay, I go work, my wife takes care of the kids." I mean, I tried to make sure I was a an equal partner in that respect and and so and I think I did that.
0: Do you think there's such a thing as work-life balance? I'm actually not convinced that there is, but I'm curious. What do you think? I do
1: think there is. I mean, I I think you have to be conscious about it. I think you have to be be aware and and what it means to you. And it balances how do you take time to make sure that you are uh, as mentally fresh and as mentally sharp as you you need to be. And, And keeping a balance in terms of avoiding unnecessary stress avoiding unnecessary anxiety and making sure that you're taking care of yourselves from, from a health standpoint so yeah there is a balance in it and it is, it is very important and you have to find out find out what that looks like and feels like for you uh in terms of your life uh, it may be some exercise it may be meditation it may be a sabbatical but you got to figure out what that need looks like for you but yeah there's a there is such a thing as work-life balance and it's and it's important and critical and vital, uh, I think, to us. And I would even say, probably right now in, the, in, our, in our lifetime and this time around in society, uh, keeping keeping that mental perspective and being as sharp as and balanced as possible is so very, very important, so that you can synthesize all the chaos and madness that 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 we're experiencing.
0: So you've heard me refer to you will we'll shift a little bit as one of the godfathers, um, and and I'll and I'll tell you what I mean by that because I'm not sure that you would necessarily know, but I can tell you that very early on in my mm-hmm. career, um, you know, there are not a lot of African Americans or Black people who are in real leadership positions in our industry, across the board. Doesn't matter the sector. They just there aren't many, um, but you know, I was working in Connecticut and I actually knew who Chris Womack was, even though I did not know you. Um, Your name was just one of those names that if you said, well, who are the Black leaders? There were names that just rolled off the top of the tongue. And you were one of those people. And I wonder if that brought, well, one, are, are you or were you ever aware of that? And then did that bring any additional pressure or something for you because of that? Being aware of
1: it, not really. Uh I was when I joined the company I don't know, back in 1988, probably that next year I attended my first Abe meeting in Hilton Head, South Carolina. Mm. And I met a bunch of people in, in Abe at that time and I got to know them pretty well. And a lot of us, Hilda and we became dear friends and kind of partnered and worked with each other throughout the course of our career and so that's kind of just what we did and and as more African Americans got into the business and got into the industry yeah I'd been there for a little while and and so always willing to share my experiences and in my two cents my few nuggets about what helped me be successful and my two cents about what you need to do and some of those things. And, and yeah, being, just being somewhat fearless and, and, and speaking the truth and saying things in a way to, to get people's attention, but also to help them, uh, uh, advance and, 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 and have good experiences throughout their lives and throughout their work careers. And so, um, I always wanted to make sure that I was doing my part in terms of bringing others along, along the way. I mean, I knew when I joined the company, there were probably, I mean, when I first joined the company, there may have been one black officer inside of Southern Company. Mm. Uh, I can't even tell you the numbers of black officers that we have today, uh, but it's in the 20s. and, And always looking for more. Uh, and so like I said I just I, I just think we I and others we have a responsibility uh, to make to make to make the places where we stand the places where we live the places where we work a little bit better than they were when we when, when we first arrived and and so giving back helping is something that's very important to me and making sure I take enough time making sure I take time May I you say you want to be with me and talk with me. I'm going to do that. Yeah. I'm not, and it's not going to be okay. What's going to be six weeks from now? No, we're going. We're going to try to get this done pretty quick. And so I just think that's that's the responsibility I have, an obligation I have. That goes
0: back to that. I, your job is to get it done.
1: Let's get it done. Let's, Let's do it. Let's get it done.
0: So, what would you tell um, somebody early in their career? I, you know, I often will hear from mostly young women, but also young men who are kind of struggling and trying to figure out how they navigate or plan their career um, moving forward. And I rarely have anything to say um, good advice because I think like you, I kind of just went with where it was taking me. I yeah. didn't necessarily have a plan. And if someone said, we think you're good at this, I was like, I'm gonna make sure you you I'm gonna prove you right. That's always been kind of my attitude. Um, but there are many people who come in and really have an end goal in mind. And so how do you help them think about like how they can get there, if they're going to get there, or put it in its proper context.
1: I do think today there's probably a more structured path and a more structured conversation that has to occur, and it goes to what are my skills, what am I good at, and how do I enhance those, those skills uh, at, at the outset? And and, then, and then, then what are the experiences I need to have? So then, that that whole kind of collaboration of my my skill set with my experiences, and then with those two things plus good outcomes, plus good results, plus I'm a good teammate. I work well with other people. I think it kind of leads to that success uh, equation that I that, that that I think about and talk about in in terms of how I see how I see the work experience evolving. Um, but I think. Yeah, talk about, I mean, what am I good at? And what is it I know? I mean, what's my what's my master's degree in? I mean, in terms of what's what am I good at? And then I'm um, gonna make sure I get the experiences um, throughout throughout the business so I can so I can know how the business runs. I understand the business and I can know what contribution I can make on to its success.
0: So tell me a little bit about, because you've said this a couple of times now, right? Getting along with other people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um I would love for you to expound on that a little bit, and and why is that important? Um, and quite frankly, how can it hinder you, right? So how do we measure this up for ourselves, right?
1: Yeah, and 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 Paul, my language is 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 less about getting along, but is more probably about working how you work well with other people. Okay, uh, being being part of a team. I mean, I don't want to just go along just to get along. Okay. I mean, but how do i how do i collaborate how do i how do i partner uh, with others to get things done because as you as you go through organizations as you as you do work i think you have to realize very quickly that they're they are not things you can get done by yourself i mean the things are done in collaboration with others instead of uh what kind of teammate am i and then uh, how do I work with my superior, with my supervisor, with my subordinates? Uh, I think I, I just think those things are, are are incredibly important. Now, I I've also had an incredible luxury in my life. I, I've never had a bad manager. I've not had a bad supervisor throughout my career. Okay. All the supervisors I've had have been very supportive and encouraging of me throughout my experience, throughout my time and tenure. Yeah, I know. I'm keenly aware that that is not the norm. That so many people have had big experiences and had bad managers who didn't encourage and did not support them. And so I think when those things happen, yeah, we have to find ways to get out and go and go find other places to work and you know, other experiences and other organizations. Um, but, but I do think that when I say work well with others, like I said, one to get things done. And secondly, it's I mean, as you are looked at and considered for other opportunities, somebody's gonna say, what is it like to work with Chris Wilman? What is it like to work with Paula Bluff? And they will ask your peers, they will ask that that universe of people that you come in contact with. And yeah, you want, you hope they will say it's a blast. Um, he's, uh, he, he, he's enjoyable to work with. He's a contributor. He, helped, he helps me. I help him. We kind of yin and yang. We kind of do things in a very collaborative kind of way. He's not just out for himself, but he's out for the team. I mean, those are the kind of things you, you're looking for in an organization uh, as, as you look to go and pursue and, and achieve other experiences.
0: And so for those of us who may have a bad manager, would you have advice for them on how they navigate that particular situation?
1: Yeah, I think you have to then go to your mentors and others outside the organization uh, to to get some coaching and counseling and then decide uh, how you either help that manager help that manager help you in terms of whether you need more 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 clarity in your terms of your goals and expectations uh, in terms of what feedback you want and need um But just getting clarity around what that relationship, what's not working, and then understanding why it's not working. And then if it's not fixable, um, let's figure out a way for me to get out of it.
0: I had a manager once who we did not get along well at all. Mm -hmm. And I had to, um, I actually went to, to the president of my company, who was a friend, and said to him, I don't want you to tell me. I don't want you to do anything. I want you to tell me what I should do. How do I manage a situation better? Um, because I didn't want him to feel like I wanted him to address this person. I didn't want that. I was like, I need you to help me figure out how do I make it better for myself. And he gave me great advice and I was smart enough to listen um, so much so that when this guy retired, I was the only one he had to speak at his retirement party. Absolutely. Like it just changed our relationship. Um, but Um, So for people who are working, you know, maybe having tough relationships with their bosses or maybe even their peers, um, today we talk a lot about being authentic at work and what does authenticity look like. And so I wondered if you could tell us how does that kind of drive the way that you work, but then, and also if you were going to give someone advice about what it means to be authentic, um, how does that look as they're kind of pursuing their own careers?
1: I mean, I think that authenticity looks like um, this relationship, this explain to me what this feedback looks like, uh, being, uh, being honest with me about how, how I'm performing. Uh, give me, give me great clarity. Give me, what is it you expect of me? And let's make sure we are aligning our expectations. I Man, I, I think in, in, in work relationships, uh, that's one of the biggest fallacies in terms of one of the biggest flaws in terms of why Organizational relationships don't work is because uh, managers are not clear about expectations, and then managers don't give good feedback uh, to to the employees. And as a result, those relationships sour, and the employee then chooses either to leave that organization or or to leave that company. I mean, most people leave leave their leave their company because of a bad bad relationship with a manager. Mm-hmm. And so the authenticity comes back to that great clarity about what is, it, what is it I'm expected to do, and what is it you expect me to do, and what is it, and how do you expect me to do it? And then when I, when I get it done, uh, yeah, give me some recognition, say thank you or whatever, but also if I fall short, uh, give, give me that feedback in terms of how I can get better. Uh, and so that's, that's what I think is so important in these, in these work relationships and these work engagements. And,
0: and so and, and do you think that managers, because I, I, you know, as a, as a leader, it's hard sometimes to give people feedback that's not positive, um, that, you know, yeah, we hard. always like to share good news, but we never necessarily want to share bad news.
1: No, it's hard. I mean, it's just it's not what we like doing. We don't like giving negative feedback. And so, so sometimes we don't want to do it. But I think that's the worst thing you can do is not, not give that feedback, feedback, because at the same time, uh, that work experience, that kind of work performance continues. And at some at some point, that person will have to be either reprimanded or removed from from that role. And the thing that you don't want to happen is is that for that person to be surprised. I mean, if you ever have to terminate someone or reprimand uh, someone, it really should not be a surprise to them. Um, they should know what's coming because you have given them enough feedback and uh, enough input that they know that they know what's coming. It, it is not a surprise. And so if it's a surprise, the manager has failed in terms of that relationship.
0: Do you guys do 360 reviews where managers get feedback from those above and behind, below them?
1: Yeah, lots of coaching, uh, lots, lots of input. Uh, so 360s, uh, ongoing continuous uh, performance management, performance engagement, uh, regular feedback sessions, all those things were expected uh, throughout our organization.
0: And how do you find that people respond to
1: that? Uh, many people don't like doing it because it takes time and you'd rather do other things than sit down with an employee and give him or her feedback. Uh, so it's something that we have to make sure that people are doing, um, that we require it. Um, but then it's also, you've got to also make sure you focus on the qualitative aspect of that process to make sure what's the quality of the feedback um, You know, is it? Are you just saying, yeah, you met this, you didn't meet it? But kind of give me some details, give me some specifics about where I fell short. That's the other part of that process that's also got to be pretty authentic and and pretty real in terms of providing what we call dirt on his feedback, Uh, because that's that's the way people get better. That's the way employees get better. That's the way we get better results throughout the organization.
0: It would seem to me though that that works well. When people are comfortable with the pe- folks that they're working with, and they feel like I can speak honestly and openly, and my opinion is valued, respected, with all those things that many of us want, and it may not work as well if a piece of that is broken. Is that how? You, is it have you guys experienced it that way, or yeah. is it different? Yeah, no, I
1: mean it's 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 yeah, I mean that it's it, it's kind of a normal human human experience, and kind of a normal human human relationships in terms of one not necessarily wanting to give that negative feedback. Um, but then, um, you know, you, you just, you're not comfortable doing it. And so the other part of that whole narrative is making sure that as managers become managers, we equip them, we prepare them to be good managers. And just because in our business, someone was a great engineer and he or she did did a great job in designing this line and, and this circuit and this pole and this pump doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a wonderful manager. And so in order to reward them for a good job they have done, sometimes we promote them to a leadership role or a supervisory role, even though they, they're not really equipped to do that. So we have to be better at making those decisions. And we also have to be better at giving them supervisory training, particularly for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, there's a big responsibility the organization in this to kind of that culture and that that leadership responsibility, leadership requirements, that's that's essential for us to have the kind of organizations that, that we want to have.
0: And so has the role of the manager shifted at all um, given COVID-19 and having at least part of a workforce that's working at home, um, but everybody who's experiencing different types of stressors than we did, say, a year ago? Um, and then you know, we'll move on to kind of the racial justice stuff, which is also now added another layer of complexity to just work life.
1: I mean, th- th- there's no question in terms of uh, the whole managerial uh, experience and responsibility is different now than it was, say, this time last year or, or the first of this year. Because, yeah, you're doing things remote, doing things via, um, distance. And so, you know, you're not... Seeing your employees and and the workers on a day to day basis, you don't know what they're doing throughout the course of the day. And so, many managers, many leaders are are control knuckleheads. They want to control. They want to be in complete control, and they want to know what you're doing. Uh, and now you have to measure that by the outcomes, um, and not just by seeing uh, what an employee is doing. And so, one, how do you how do you create that accountability? Uh, how do you uh measure the work, how do you measure performance? And what are the expectations? And then then how do you how do you maintain employee engagement? uh um, because employees is sitting at home. I mean they've got children, they got other family members that they have to engage with. Uh, so what does that engagement experience look like? And so how do I how do I keep them connected to the uh, to the work? How do I keep them connected to the organization? And then uh, making sure that the work assigned is uh, that we need to get done, making sure they're getting done. And so, no, it's a whole different experience. It's a whole different uh, game game now, in terms of being being a manager and a leader in this virtual world.
0: And do you find that your managers, um, not just you know the people who report to them, but the managers themselves probably need additional support through this or not?
1: Yes, they do. They do. Uh, because this is not what they signed up for. Mm. I mean, this is not the managerial relationship that they, that they were hired to do. I mean, they were hired to sit and sit in their office or in their cube or whatever and look out and see where their employees are and go touch them and say, go do this or do that. And this is good, this is not good. And now having to do that uh, in a virtual setting is a whole different experience and 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 how how they how they manage how they lead and so you know being do whether it's uh whatever platform you use for your virtual calls uh how do you what how do you structure those conversations how do you structure those engagements i mean that's a just a whole different way of leading and 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 managing and so yeah i mean i think we all have to have to challenge ourselves and, and, and support our managers during this time. And then you know, the other element of that is, a lot of employees, I think, uh, have enjoyed these, this, this virtual experience, but I think they're also nervous in terms of, at some point in time will the organization say that, okay, stuff has gotten done We're being just as productive, but do they really need me? Is my job safe? I mean, will they use this as an opportunity uh, to 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 redo, redesign how we do work? Uh, so there's some anxiety there. I think through this experience, and many companies like ours say that we're not going to lay anybody off uh, because of COVID. Uh, but I do think, uh, whenever we return to to work and return to uh, some degree of of normality, I think we'll, we will also assess. How does work get done? Mm. What does that process look like? Who who needs to be in the office every day? Who can do this virtually? And do we need as many people as we've had before doing this work? Uh, Because there are a lot of experiences, a lot of learnings uh, that 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 we're receiving going through this virtual experience. Have you
0: found that with the virtual experience that perhaps our your millennial employees are enjoying it more or less than other groups, or is it everyone's kind of just like, wow, this is I'm um, either really great or I can't wait to get, get me done with this.
1: Uh, I think it goes to kind of your, 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 your level of maturity and savviness with technology okay. and, 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 not having fear. And so, so, so I think as you, as you, and so younger generations, I think uh, probably clearly are more savvy uh, with with technology than some of the older generations are. And so I think the transition has been a lot easier for them. I think everybody recognized that they had to come and get up to speed and and do things uh relying on technology to get work done, whereas in the past they would have done it themselves or' done it through somebody else and so they've had to um, uh make sure they they learn how to rely on technology and utilize it uh to help get their work done so we we
0: have a little bit of time left i want I want to talk about race. Um, and we 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 did the virtual roundtable with Public Utilities Fortnightly, um, and we we you know, and at that point we were responding to George Floyd and some of the other incidents, and now we've had Jacob Blake who was shot this weekend. Um, and you and you said in that interview that sometimes you are an angry black man, and sometimes you feel like that's the person who has to show up at work to get to provide, I think, other people maybe clarity on what all of this means for. For African American employees in a very personal as well as professional way. And I wondered if you'd be interested, if you will expound upon that particular point. And then, is it different, right? Now that we've seen yet another um, incident, has it heightened it for you? Has it changed the way that you think about the role that you play at Southern and helping colleagues move through this? Like, how are you thinking about it?
1: First question about anger. Uh, for me, anger has come from. Um seeing the police officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck not seeing, not feeling any sense of remorse. Gotcha. That was my initial angry um reaction. Anger also comes from just to the perpetual nature and the ongoing nature of these kind of events and 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 killings and and, experience and experiences, that that Black people uh, have had in this country, and you just keep, you just say, okay, here's another one, and yes, yeah, so then that, that brings about anger. Also, for me, I I get angry. I've gotten angry by lack of awareness, uh, the oblivious nature in terms of what. How white people have reacted to it, and and just sometimes being seem to be very just unaware, mm-hmm. and and I and I say white people, not to brand or generalize uh, the entire race, uh, but yeah, just a just a a just a complete lack of awareness about uh, these things that have gone on for years, and just being oblivious to them. Yeah. Uh, and so that's kind of has been the source of, of my. How does that show up
0: or does it show up in your role at Southern company?
1: Um, fostering that to say, this has got to change and things have got to be different. And to taking steps, um, Doing things, supporting efforts, supporting work, uh, bringing teams together uh, to say we've got to do something different and to say yes, uh, feeling like and, and sincerely believing that this time is different, that we really do have an opportunity to really make some real change and to bring white people along to. To, to, to help uh, bring about greater racial justice and to help eliminate uh, some systemic biases and to help eliminate uh, racism in, in our organizations. Uh, I do think uh, because of technology, uh, because of body cameras and cell phones and a lot of things that, I mean, if we didn't have body cameras or cell phones, we would not have witnessed George Floyd's killing. I mean, we would not have seen Jacob Blake being shot in the back. I mean, we, we would not have seen those things. It would have been just about just another black man being killed and another black man being shot. I mean, we would not have seen Ahmaud Burry being shot and, and, and captured in a whole video, that whole process on video. I mean, so yeah, thank heavens for technology. Uh, Because we would have missed those things and it would have been just another story uh, written in in a paper uh, that would not have galvanized, would not have gotten the attention of this country and the world to recognize um, uh, this serious serious issue of racism uh, that uh, black people and people of color experience in this country.
0: I had a, um, after the last election, a, a colleague say to me, That I had to understand that white men were disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. And I can remember saying, so they're experiencing what black people are experiencing. Because in my mind, you know, the disenfranchised of white men, I just couldn't kind of wrap my head around the emotion that he felt around that. For me, it felt very flat. I'm sure that um, he was frustrated because I was kind of like, what are you talking about? Um, But tell me, how do you help your black employees i mean I, you know i i'm tired there's so many of us who are like we don't want to talk about this anymore we don't want to explain to white people what this means we like you're seeing it the way we're seeing it how do you bring folks along so that they actually want to participate in this process so that it gets better as opposed to a lot who may say yeah go ahead i'm i'm not interested like i'm i'm done with this kind of conversation
1: no i see. I, I think we have to be optimistic then that- things can change. And I think we also have to, uh, assume a responsibility of, we have to be, we have to, one of our responsibilities is to help make things better. Okay. We have to be, we have to bring about change. We can't sit back and give up. And so being from Alabama, uh, spent a lot of my formative years down in a town very close to Troy Alabama where John Lewis grew up and so I got to know Congressman Lewis and we would talk about Troy Alabama and Rutledge Alabama and the cotton fields that we were that we became very familiar with and and seeing him never give up I can't I mean, I know personally I can never give up. I've got to keep trying. I kind of, kind of keep, keep making the effort. I think the process must be done a little bit different because I think uh, there's been a lot of work and a lot of focus that white people have given to, to this work and, and, and speaking about it and talking about it without not creating any kind of expectations of, of our white colleagues and, and white people. Mm-hmm. And I think today we have to make sure we are we are challenging them and and, and, and and encouraging them to to understand what the issues are, and then helping them understand and help them uh, do some self-reflection to say, this is what I have to do different. And so, I mean, as we as organizations look look for a lot of tactical solutions to, to deal with a lot of these issues. I think there's also foundationally some systematic work that has kind of continued to be done kind of in a therapeutic way of of continuing conversations, uh, make sure there's listening occurring, make sure there's self-reflection that's going and helping people understand and processing uh, what they're hearing and then understanding what to do with that, what to do about it, what to do with it and what to do about it. And yeah, we've got to do a lot of the other stuff as well but uh, but 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 I do think uh, foundationally we got to keep talking, we got to keep listening, people got to keep learning, people got to understand their their own uh, systemic biases and, and racism that they may have, and as we sort those things out, that's how we really, that, that's how we begin to get better, that's how we begin to make some significant change in in these experiences and these relationships. And I speak a lot about, and that's where I think the, the business community has got to play a major role. they got to lead a lot of these conversations and not, not just look for government to do it.
0: Well, that, that seems to me to be a bit of a shift, right? That business has decided or business leaders would say, yeah, this is an issue that we need to weigh in on and lead on. Um, some might suggest that it's outside the purview of business. I um, mean that and the business job is to write run efficient companies that make money for shareholders and write and and provide yeah. help allow employees. Yeah. I think what you're suggesting is a much broader role for business in this conversation. So why is that? Why do you think it's important that business be involved in this?
1: In yeah, first things? I mean, I, I do think there I mean, there there's some structural and legal issues that that governmental bodies yeah have to have to deal with. There are certain laws that they have to have to address. Uh, but I think when you look beyond those things that deal with the hearts and minds and souls of people, when you when you look at the relationships that business has with its customers that business has with its employees and that the businesses have with its communities, I think you then say, okay, business must be a leader in the in these conversations because I mean business is going to say, yeah, I mean, I know demographically uh, the makeup of uh, of of the US in particular, it's going to change. It's going to be browner going forward. So I've got to be able to to attract uh, a number of different looking people, uh, different kinds of people to come work for me. Um, my Customers who I sell stuff to, there are certain expectations they have and certain demands that they have of me as a as a business and as a company, and I must be I'm, I must be able to respond to that to them. Uh, to create that customer relationship and experience with it. And then businesses live and work and 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 operate in, in, in communities. And so I think businesses have to look beyond their bottom lines and say, am I being a good citizen? Am I being a good steward? Am I being a good community partner? And so I think as they do those things that if they if they I think, look at those metrics and responsibilities they have. They'll say, Here's some things we got to do and and this is an issue that we have to lead on we have to we have to demonstrate leadership. we have to be we have to show how we can do this and how we can be better because not just doing it because it's going to make my business better. My, my business should should be more productive. It should be more efficient it should be um, more engaging and, and just a, a wonderful place to work. Uh, but it makes life better for for, for my employees, uh, for my community, for my customers, for and for my investors. And so I, I think you, I think businesses have to look at it holistically and uh, but also just look at look at this conversation, look at these issues in a manner that looks at it where it's much bigger than their bottom lines. Uh but but we do have uh social obligations uh to this world we live in. And so I, I think that's the challenge we have and and that's the challenge that we as business must must embrace and must champion and and say, you know, we're gonna be the ones that's gonna change this. And we're gonna need the change.
0: Do you think uh where where does um diversity, equity, inclusion how does that intersect with this relation? This conversation is it the same or is it a complement to? Or how would you see the larger DEI
1: conversation? And I don't use DEI language. I talk about race.
0: Okay, well that that's why I'm asking
1: the question. Yeah, no, I I, I talk about race and I, I I and it's not fair to the DEI conversation. I get it but I always feel like that is comfortable language to to make white people feel comfortable. And so I'm very direct in terms of the work that we do and we talk about, it's about, about race, uh, about racial equity. And, and so it's, when you say race, does that make people uncomfortable? Yes, but that's okay. And it's, but that's what we have to work through. We have to get, get comfortable talking about race and confronting race and addressing race and embracing race. And when we do that, we, we, we're going to be better. We, we're going we're gonna to do better. We're going to advance. We're going gonna to get past it. I'm, I doubt it, but we're going to get better at it. And so that's why I just, I think it's so important for us to talk about race and talk about race particularly from a black and white perspective. Uh, not to leave out the people of color, other people of color, but I also say and I honestly believe that if we get the black and white race issue right, uh, the residual value and residual benefits will accrue uh, to other people of color uh, and others on this journey uh, and, this, uh, and this diversity spectrum. Uh, but we've got to get the black, white, race thing right.
0: So why do you think people are so uncomfortable with the race discussion. And I I agree with you completely, but people are uncomfortable talking about waste. Why do you think that is?
1: I think it's a lack of awareness, lack of understanding, lack of uh, not knowing how to talk about it. I mean, I've had so many white friends say, uh, I don't, I'm afraid to talk about it because I may say the wrong thing. Hmm. And so they choose to be silent. And so, and the other challenge I have now, particularly with white people is that you can't be silent. Yeah. Uh, you're going to engage in this conversation and 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 let's talk and let's listen let's learn and we'll help you''ll we'll, we'll help you understand what the conversation looks like and and what needs how it needs to be talked about uh but let's not be silent. I see silence as capitulating to the past and capitulating to to status quo and and that's not acceptable uh but yeah, yeah i just i think i mean race has been. I mean, from the period of slavery to the founding of this country, I mean, race has been just a, a gnawing evil in our in a country that we just we just have never gotten past. And so um and we've just never learned how to talk about it. We have never learned how to confront it. Yet we changed a bunch of laws to try to make it better. Uh but um we just, we just never have been able to have the, the open dialogue about it so that we can all get better at it. And one of them, I think, going back in terms of business, I mean, business is probably one of the few places where there's real kind of integration, you know? I mean, there there are some churches that are better now in terms of not being completely segregated. Um, but business is one of those places where, where people of different races and genders and orientations come together, you know? And in, uh, in one of the few places. And so that's why, once again, why we have the opportunity, I think, to uh, to uh, to lead on these subjects.
0: And so as a leader, how is it going for you at Southern Company, right? Because it's not that you have only Black employees and, and that you may have employees who don't necessarily agree that racism is systemic. How do you lead through all of that?
1: Are uh, you... You confront it, you put a plan in place, uh, you, get, you get leadership on board, uh, you provide avenues for open dialogue, you make commitments and get buy-in, and, and but then the other part of this is to say this journey, it's a long journey, and make sure that it's not episodic, uh, that when the next storm comes through, we'll move on to something else, uh, and that we're going to we're gonna to stick to this and, and yeah, we've done this before. I mean, we've gone through diversity training, we've gone through a lot of things over my career. And that also contributes to my, my frustration and sometimes my anger about this, that we've gone, we've had this conversation, we've had this, uh, these, these dialogues uh, before, um, but, but I, do think, I do feel like this time is a little different, uh, but also we've learned from our experiences in the past and and we got to get everybody. We got to bring everybody to the table, understand their perspectives, and they they will be they will, they will be different, and those perspectives must be valued, must be listened to, must be understood. Um, and no, it's not going to be a very linear process that we say this is where we're going and we're going to get there without any kind of interruptions or any kind of twist. I mean, there will be twists, there will be turns. But uh, if we focus on being committed, being sustainable, and being accountable, uh, we'll get there. We'll get, we'll get to the change that we want to have.
0: OK. So I'm going to ask you a couple more questions and I'm going to let you go. Yeah. Um, first question I, I think I want to ask you is, um, completely off topic, but what is it that you're reading? Or what do you read that kind of inspires you? What is it that, where is your interest?
1: Oh, God. I mean, I'm a, I'm a real autobiographical reader, particularly of, of presidents. And so I when I have some free time, but unfortunately, back and back in school now, that consumes a lot of my reading to me because, mm-hmm. I mean, a, a, a doctoral program is is never easy. And professors love to uh love to impose their will on you. the imposition of will (laughs) yeah the imposition of will and so you you must read this you must write this you must research this Uh, but yeah i mean i i mean i do when i when i I do have a free time i mean i love to i love to read about the presidents i mean the grants and the and, and the lincolns and the jeffersons and 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 that crowd um going through uh, different things now about race and, and that, that I try to want to read myself so I can re- refer it to others. Uh, James Baldwin, I'm a Negro, uh, the White Vigility kind of work that, uh, I mean, so different things like that uh, that I, I mean, also I'll always read John Grisham, something just to ease my mind, kind of mm-hmm. an And you know, I try to make sure I've read everything he's written and so I got, I think it's the last one that I'm working on now in my spare time.
0: Okay. And what would you tell, right, nine-year-old Chris who's making a stink at the hospital? What advice would you give him?
1: Oh, God. I mean, understand that those instincts that, that, that motivated you to engage the way you did. Hold on to that, champion that, uh, shepherd that, bottle that up to to help help yourself by the course of your life. Uh, because there will be many other experiences and encounters that you will have. And, and just be aware of those instincts and be aware of yourself and understand yourself. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you'll go through different experiences throughout throughout life. You don't know which way they're going to go. Some are going to go incredibly positive and some are going to go the complete opposite direction. Uh, but staying focused, staying committed, uh, staying faithful, no, 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 matter what, and and always believing that everything's going to be okay. Just and just remain incredibly optimistic about about life and 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 what this life has to offer, and what this life has, all the good that it that it can bring to you, and I. I mean, those are the things that I would share with that with with that nine-year-old, and, and I'd say, okay, it's, it's going to be okay. okay.
0: And I'll ask one more, and, and that is, what would you want our members to leave from this conversation? Leave
1: with? Uh, stay stay engaged. the 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 importance of staying engaged, the importance of being committed to to looking beyond your own selfish interests and your own selfish needs. Um, that we are here. Uh, with a responsibility to to give back to lift up and to help others and if we do that i i think uh, the the great the the great rewards that that we experience would be a lot more gratifying than the uh than than, 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 than this selfish experiences and selfish benefits that you gain yourself uh we, we we have to look beyond our own selfish interests and our own selfish motivations and i just I think I think that's what I, I challenge others. Uh, yeah, we may do great wonderful things, uh, but who we shared it with and, and and who else who else have we helped and, and how how do we benefit others? Um, and those are the kind of things that, that I think about and and commit myself to as I as I go through this this journey called life on on a day-to-day basis. Thanks for
0: joining us for our podcast with Chris Womack. You can learn more about all things aid by visiting us at www.aabe.org. Join us next week for a great conversation with Talisa Tolliver, general manager of renewable power for Chevron. And So talk a little bit about for, for the folks who are listening, we're, we're talking about being a black woman. It's a blessing for sure. You know, I, I wouldn't want to be anybody else. But there is a curse in being double counted. And I want you to share a little bit about what you mean by that and what that looks like for you kind of in your life and then how you manage it.
2: You know, it's one of those things about how people define you, right? And so it's, it's, it's a blessing because I love who I am. Um, As you said, I wouldn't want to change, you know, any of that. But I think there's also skepticism with every step of success, right? That you got it because you're female, you got it because you're black, you got it because you're a black female, right? And so I think that underlying sense of skepticism becomes a burden and and, and what and how it manifests itself is you try to do more and you're constantly trying to show people, and you're you're constantly trying to do more than others, and you're constantly trying to prove to others. And I don't think everybody has that burden.